the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another edition of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. And on the other line, you can, of course, find my friend and co-host, the, let's see, uh, what, what do I have for uh, words today? Venerable? Are you venerable? Or have I used that one before? The one and only Alan Niven. I there think you you've used venerable before, Mitch. And we've done affable. And, and, and hello to you as well. And just be careful how you say venerable. I mean, you know, I don't want it to be uh, coming off like I've got STDs here or something. <laughs> but, um, well, at least I haven't said codger or curmudgeon or, you know, I, I, I've been keeping it all polite and nice, so... Yeah, well, you know, codger and curmudgeon might be a little closer to the truth, so have at it. And, and of course, speaking of codgers and curmudgeon, I have a episode full of great interviews. Um, and, you know, the, the episode, as we were about to record it, was going to be with, or is with, Al Jorgensen, of course, of Ministry. They have a new album out called Americant. So we talk about that and a whole bunch of other stuff. And then we, we, we reach way, way back into the 70s and we, we talk to television guitarist Richard Lloyd, who has a new album that came out this month called The Countdown. But literally, literally, uh, about five minutes before Alan was scheduled to phone, Got a call from Dave Mustaine, and we ended up doing a very quick sort of 15-minute update. I, I don't want to call it an interview per se because there was sort of no arc and, and development. It was just, you know, it, it, it was the blast beat of interviews, basically. It was like, tell me about the cruise. Tell me about the beer. Tell me about this festival. Tell me about that. Off we go. Off to the races. It was like Greyhound racing in Florida, but not a complaint. It's just, it's an update, and so I'm going to just start off with that. But, uh, Alan, before we get to Sir David Mustaine, who I know you've had a chance to meet and pick up off the floor and all kinds of other wonderful things, uh, any updates or things going on in the world of Alan that you care to share with us? Uh, well, there must be something on your mind. Um, actually, I had a... Uh I had a chance to speak with somebody who will remain nameless. I'll just say that they're an unimpeachable source in terms of their ability to know and speak with accuracy. And um, we were just having a little conversation about this and that. And I was, I was kind of curious about how things might be going on a creative level with uh, guns, um, whether there would be some new material recorded at some point and, uh, and you know because i have to admit i get a little bit of a a tingle a little, uh, yeah you know every now and then i can go you know it'd be really cool to hear something really good you know mm-hmm. uh, and the other thing is uh, you kind of wonder you know what's the process here how's this going to be done um because obviously i have a little bit of experience of watching that process and and what worked and what didn't work um but i you know i have to say i was mildly disappointed because what i was told was that um axe is basically sitting in a studio going over 
recordings that he didn't use for um, Chinese democracy. And that made my heart sink a little bit because, you know, maybe I'm unfair and maybe I'm a little opinionated, but I kind of look back and I go, you know what, Axe, you know, have you written a truly memorable and concise rock and roll song since the 80s? And is there a come to Jesus moment when you look in the mirror and go, you know, I wrote my best stuff with Izzy. And isn't there a thought process of, hey, if we're going to do this, let's do it to our standard. And doing it to our standard means let's get Izzy involved. Um, let you know, let the best things that Slash has ever played on have been um, a, a combination of Izzy and Axel's composing. But it seems to me that, you know, for some reason, that's not going to happen. And I can't, I can't resist it. I mean, it looks like we have an album title. And we can look forward to Chinese leftovers. Well, as long as they're warmed up, because cold, who, who wants cold leftovers? But... <laughs> Let, let me and I and I don't know the history of all the, the the CD stuff, the Chinese democracy stuff. But was any of that stuff in its infancy born out of the days of Duff and Slash at the end of the '90s before they walked away, or do you know if all of this stuff comes from, you know, the middle 2000s where it, it was just one guy with one vision? Any any inkling on that like how yeah well, I, I i obviously you know i wasn't the uh, log keeper um in any way shape or form at that time um so i couldn't say with absolute precision that there was nothing um in chinese democracy that came from earlier times um but you know as, as the chinese democracy stuff was leaked out and I don't know about you, but I had a copy of the album years before they released it. Um, as, as it all got leaked out, it, it was pretty apparent to me that this is uh, all new composing and construction over the, what was it, 15 years that it took to put together. Um, you know, so, and I've no doubt that there's, you know, lots of bits and pieces that weren't used, but if if I if I were allowed a wish, my wish would be, hey, let's get as close to the original chemistry, and see if it still sparks up and fires, and get Izzy involved, and make a couple of rock and roll tracks, something exciting, yep. you know. Um, but that would be my wish. But uh, apparently, that's not what's happening. Well, I'll give you I'll give you quickly my wish. And, and first of all, let, let's let's see the forest for the trees here. There is new guns on the horizon so that's that's never bad would it be nice to get adler and izzy in there and and write and do some you know the, the swing on the drums and the whole and, and just not even if they play on the album but just have their input yes but but i think worse comes to worse though you should say listen i've been on tour with melissa and frank and slash and richard and duff for two years now Let's take that energy, let's take that angst, let's take that moment and at least capture that, you know, at least capture that lightning in a bottle rather than say, 
well, okay, thanks for playing with me for two years. Now, let me go back to 2002 and try to dust this off and see if we can make it viable. That that Because if I'm – and I can't speak for every, anybody. We know that. You can't speak for anybody either. Uh, but if I were Slash and I was Duff, I'd be like – yeah, do I really want to put my guitar solo and, and, and my bass playing on something that's 16 years old? I mean, you know, uh, I wouldn't, but, you know, sometimes you do well, what you got to do, right? We'll see. Maybe it's just part of a process, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't make much sense to me. Right, and, and if it is part of a process, you know, you look at what Van Halen did on A Different Kind of Truth. They went back and dusted off some demos and dusted off some stuff. And they came out with an album that was actually very good, very cohesive, and it gave them that sort of retro 70s Van Halen sound. And you go, well, yeah, of course, because they're using those demos. And so they created something new from something borrowed or something left over, and it 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 worked out. So hopefully it'll work out for 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 guns and 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 listen if it's just a process maybe it'll it'll create new ideas and new ways of going but uh, anyway let me let me get over to mr mustaine the wonderful uh, david mustaine megadeth has a cruise they have a beer they have all kinds of stuff and dave gives us the update here is the one the only david mustaine we are speaking with megadeth frontman dave mustaine they of course have their uh, cruise coming up, the uh, Mega Cruise. Uh, Dave, talk to me about this cruise. It, it is a very exciting thing coming on. You've got Anthrax, Testament, and all these bands. Um, what was the idea behind getting this cruise going? Well, the cruise was something that uh, we we had been offered to do the uh, whatever seventy thousand tons of metal cruise. I yep. think it's called um, a couple years ago, and um, something happened where we didn't. Uh, go through with that and then uh, we had uh, some something happen with our management where we got word from the guys at Iron Maiden we were supposed to go out on tour with them and they had said you know can you guys come off of the road uh, for a while um, so that we can do this tour so we said sure and um, after after that happened we uh, you know the band um, was told the other two guys were told by management that you know you guys gotta find something to do for a little while as we all did and they didn't like that so they went their own way and took a little while for me to regroup the band but um, once we did that we made Dystopia and and um, I, I don't know if that answers your question or not. It, it answers it perfectly, we, and I know that since we, we're we've, yeah. I'm sorry. I was just going to say we've had just so 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 much stuff that's happened with, you know. I imagine we're going to talk about the cruise and stuff, but you know, there there's been um, a, a pretty considerable change in in our world. We've gone from um, never getting the Grammy to getting the Grammy to, you know, finally getting a lineup that I think is is compatible or, or, or even even equivalent to the famous Rest in Peace lineup. So. Yeah, so, well, in fact, we're, we, they've only given us 15 minutes, so I'll sort of rush through it. An another topic that uh, I wanted to quickly get to, because they asked me to get to this, is the Megadeth beer at Tout Le Monde, which is done here in Quebec at Unibrew. Um, talk mm -hmm. to me just quickly about how you, you got to cho uh, choose a local brewer 
And um, what are sort of the plans to expand that? You know, even up here now that that cannabis is legal, would you see yourself making a cannabis brewed infused beer, or what are sort of the plans to go forward with the beer? Well, um, you know, much like uh, everything that we try and do, like you know, your question about us doing the cruise and everything, and and why why we're you know do, doing uh, uh, the beer, it's it's to I guess to to stay relevant and to do something you know that's a little different. When when I had done the uh, thing with the symphony in San Diego, uh, my wife had suggested that we did something, some kind of a social lubricant because the two worlds converge in the metal and the, the classical world, and and uh, you know, so she suggested why don't we do a wine and and we did and it was super successful. But you know, during the day, a glass of wine doesn't appeal to me. I, you know, a cold beer does, and I thought it would be great to do a beer and. And we talked to a couple of people and it just didn't it just didn't click. And then we met the guys in Unibrew and it was great. I love Jerry, and um, you know we're we're building our relationship there. We've only been there a little under two years, and and it's been tremendously successful. We're getting ready to do our second beer, and um, you know it's 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 much like you know like I was saying with the the cruising. We wanted to do something different. We wanted to do something relevant. That that seventy thousand tons of metal thing. It just you know it it didn't for whatever reason it didn't work out. And and um, I, I wanted to do it. Now we've got friends with Kiss who um, uh, you know Gene and Paul and obviously their manager who's taught us a lot about it. And and uh, we're really hoping that it's going to be great. Hopefully you can make it down there too. Oh, I'd love to make it down there. So, okay, let, let's talk really quickly about the a Kiss thing. They on their cruises, they normally go mm-hmm. back into the back catalog and pick out these rarities, these gems, these die-hard nuggets. Is that something that you see Megadeth doing on the cruise, where you're going to pick out songs that maybe you've never performed live or haven't done in 15 years, or is it sort of a standard set and the fans just come out, enjoy the sun, the beach, and just get a, a kick-ass uh, Megadeth show? I'm hoping that's going to be a lot of both. Um, you know, of course, with with new lineup, we we uh, do have to kind of uh, make up some lost ground of uh, unfamiliarity with the catalog, so we can play as much as we know. But we 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 have a lot of uh, plans for activities and stuff where it's not just you know concert. There's other times because. You know, a lot of times people want to hear people play, but a lot of other times they want to get to know the musicians, and we're going to try and have some really fun activities for people to do. Uh, one thing is um, I thought it would be really great to to have uh, like a karaoke kind of thing where the fans can play with a real band instead of sing along to a CD. So we've got a, we've been talking to some cover bands about coming and uh, doing that for us, and and then having a you know contest and and I I just thought you know how cool would that be you know you're a music fan and you finally get to feel what it feels like to stand up on a stage with a band with the lights there'll be all the fans will be there everybody will be having a great time we'll all be having sun and fun and liquor and food and 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 you know no matter how bad anybody sings everybody's going to be good sports and cheer for them and stuff that's going to be so fun you know, and 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 I don't know that that that's something that people get a chance to ever do that before. You know, go out and play in, in front of their their heroes, and you know, I, I would probably clam up if I was doing something like that. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, how dependent is a second cruise on a a completely sold out boat? And, and 
is it something that you want to build over a couple of years and, and have a, a second cruise and a third cruise? Or if this one isn't a smashing success right out the gate, well, okay, we tried it. I mean, how dependent is moving forward? Is there a plan to do two, three, four, five of these? Um, there's not a plan to do three. Two's already underway. So I'll let you know when three starts. Good. Uh, last time we spoke was back in June, I guess it was. And during the interview, you had talked about the new album with the new lineup and Dirk being a little bit more aggressive. And you used the term blast beats. And of course, all the different websites ran off with, oh my God, Dave said blast beats, blah, blah, blah. Um, is that something, though, that you're still interested in, in making this album more extreme, more metal, more out there? I mean, with the new lineup, which you seem very pleased with, and I know the fans are very pleased with. Is... I must not know what a blast beat is. <laughs> right, because everybody, everybody uh, you know, uh, hooked on to that term. But is that something that you're still trying to, you know, do you want to push what, the boundary? What does, it, what, does it mean to, what does it mean to you? What does blast beat mean to you? A blast beat to me, and of course I'm I'm not a musician, but a blast beat means just playing. Like, how can I say it's not? I don't want to say playing drums very fast, but it's a style of drumming uh, that I would say Charlie Benente in Anthrax is very accustomed to. Just um, I don't even know how to explain it. Um, I mean, I, in fact, I can't really explain. Dirk it. already does that in his right. old band, right? So he's just going to keep doing what he's doing in a different band, <laughs> right? But but yeah, but is that something that, that that you're looking forward to? The having this new drum sound. Like what does what does Dirk bring to Megadeth? Well, just because you have a blast beat doesn't mean everything's a blast beat. You know? well, of course not. And and I think I think the thing that Dirk brings to the band is <clears throat> this uh, uncanny similarity to Gar Samuelson. And um, that, that to me, is the best thing out of all of it, whether he can play fast or or not. He, he can, and whether he can play metal or not, he can, and whether he can play jazz or not, he totally can. And it's been so long. You know, Nick was great, but um, Gar had something Nick didn't. You know, Nick was a, a metal kind of jazz guy. Um, Gar was, he was an innovator, and... Um, you know, uh, Dirk to me is like the ghost of Gar Samuelson. It's really crazy, and and you know, unfortunately, both those drummers, you know, they're no longer with us to 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 have them do a drum off. So I can say, see, I told you. But um, you know, I'm I, I'm flattered uh, to have been uh, graced with such great drummers in the first place. Yeah, and you continue that. Um, of course, you are coming to uh, Canada, and you are doing a North American tour opening for Ozzy Osbourne or being part of the Ozzy Osbourne tour. Uh, talk to me about that, because you did you did the Scorpions tour, and I know that we, we've spoken about you and being a fan of the Scorpions, and that was a great time and a great moment, and the show I saw in Laval, Quebec was phenomenal. Uh, talk to me about going out with Ozzy, and what does that mean to you in terms of a fan, but also as, you know, a, a member of Megadeth and running your own band and business and what does that mean for you personally and for the band well i had the privilege a long time ago of uh, playing golf in a tournament with frank sinatra and i got uh, it was a, a capital records um sponsored event so i went down to palm springs and 
played in the tournament, and one of the things that you got was uh, a club from from the event. So I have this Frank Sinatra golf club, and I'm listening to Ozzy's dressing room, and he's blasting Frank Sinatra before he goes on stage. And I thought, fuck, I had no idea. You're such a big Sinatra fan, and I've got this golf club, and it's a memento, and you know, I, I, uh, I, I appreciate it, but I think Ozzy might like it even more. So. I brought it the next time I saw him. I gave it to him, and he walked up to me and he hugged me. And a bunch of people in the dressing room go, <gasps> and I went, "What? What's going on?" And and they were like, "Ozzy doesn't ever hug anybody." Now you're in the family, and I was like, "Oh great!" <laughs> I thought it was going to hell. <laughs> And and it's going to be a, a great tour. I'm looking forward to seeing that one in in Montreal. And boy, I'm trying to rush through all these questions here because they gave us ten minutes. Um, you did speak uh, earlier this year about Kegadeth, about a a festival where that has to do with the beer and, and the band. And is right. that is that the proper name for it? Was is it Kegadeth or was that sort of said facetiously? And if it is. What is sort of the plan to roll that out, and when do we see sort of our first keg of death dates? I don't know that we're announcing that yet, but it's real. And we we were going to be doing it at the beginning of um, of 2019, but when the Aussie thing came, we pushed it back. Okay, and last time we spoke, you talked about replacing Gigantotour with a new concept, a new festival. Is this that new festival that you were talking about, or is that something? Yeah. Com- okay, so that's yeah. and there's there's no details we we can get at all, but but it will happen oh, at sure. some point. I, I can t- I can tell you about it, but I mean it's like until it's confirmed. You know, we 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 did have the dates lined up. We you know we had the buildings um, held and everything. So we're just we're just moving it back, and uh, we're going to have an announcement on, on when the dates are, but. Basically, it's a craft uh, craft beer meets a metal festival where we've got um, a bunch of really great uh, facilities held, and um, we've got our eyes on some terrific bands. Uh, the the thing is, it's it's only uh, two days a week. Um, there's uh, it's four weekends in a row, and uh, so we've got to find bands that can actually pull something like that off. Because to have a band out on tour for you know. 25 days and to only play you know eight or nine of those dates uh, with us they're going to have to find other stuff to do and you know we we strongly encourage that because we want the festival to be great for everybody and have a bunch of really great bands but um you know there's a lot of logistic stuff that needs to be worked out and and uh we're we're real close to hammering all that out the, the aussie thing came as um, something that was really really great for us um i don't know anybody in their right mind that would turn it down so we we uh, accepted and and just moved kick of death back a little bit. Yeah, and I'm glad you didn't uh, it, you didn't pass on the Aussie thing because that that is going to be a phenomenal show in uh, in Montreal or and and everywhere, of course, in, in North America. I, I can't wait to see that. And uh, I, I know we're running out of time, so I'll just quickly uh, uh, ask you this. Uh, I know you've been a, a Kiss fan over the years. You covered Strange Ways. Uh, the band covered Strange Ways. Uh, with the band hitting the end of the road tour, what are you sure of your thoughts on on them stepping away? And does it give you a moment to pause and say, 
you know, what are sort of the next 10 years look like for Megadeth? Do we start thinking of that, or are you not there at all? Well, um, Kiss is one of those those bands that we love because they say they're going to go away, and they don't. And uh, I, I love the band. I know that they've they've broken up, they've gone away, they've retired, and yeah, just as many, probably as many times as as uh, Ozzy said, no more tours. I think the, there's a no more tours ten coming up or something like that. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I don't want them to stop playing. I never want Ozzy to stop playing. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm a music fan. The thought of of Ozzy not playing music to me is incomprehensible. You know, I, I don't I don't see people like that. When I see my my peers and my contemporaries, my friends, my you know the guys that that are in my world, I don't think of them doing anything but playing music. And that's how you see yourself too. Then you you don't see a, a point where you put down the guitar and say because I mean you had you had sort of walked away years ago at the beginning of whatever the end of the nineties, early two thousands, but you don't see that again where you're just going to say, yeah, I'm done. You're 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 going to go out sort of like Lemmy, I would imagine. Well, that wasn't by choice when I stopped playing. Of course. I had an injury, injury. Right. That, that kept me from playing. But, uh, well, you know, I, I kind of look at it like this. There are people in, in the music world that I think um, probably should probably should hang it up. Um, but it's not for me to say. And, um, you know, I would hate for someone to tell me, you know, Dave, you're too old or or you shouldn't be doing this anymore. I think that that's a very mean thing to say to somebody. But, uh, you know, I, I, myself, I'll know when I can't do it. If if it gets too hard to sing and play at the same time, I won't do it anymore. You know, I've already had to have my neck put back together from headbanging, so I don't really know how much more the old skeleton can take. But uh, until then, I'm going to keep doing my job every day, and I'm going to do it as best as I can. Yeah, and I think uh, I think much like Anthrax, Megadeth is one of these bands that seems to be getting better with age. The last few albums, Dystopia, the current tours, well, and that that's sincere. I mean, I've I've seen the progression, and you know, when you opened up for for the Scorpions, that was not a veteran band riding on their coattails. That was a hungry band that was out to prove something, and it's amazing to me that after whatever it is, thirty five years or thirty years that you still have that desire because a lot of your contemporaries don't, they just say, ah, you know what? It's a festival. It's a paycheck. Let's go. And that's not you and Ellison. That is not Megadeth. You are mm. as hungry and as on fire as whatever the, 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 the prime years. Thank you. There you go. Uh, Dave, always, always a pleasure. And hopefully we will get to do it again when uh, you roll around Montreal in June. And certainly looking forward to seeing that. And uh, merci, as we say. Uh, uh, merci back. And uh, I will see you in Montreal. Thanks, Thank you, buddy. Sir. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a big thank you to uh, Dave Mustaine for that quick update on everything in the world of Megadeth. And yes, I am not an expert on blast beats, but I just know that Charlie Benente is the blast beat king. And that's really all that matters is to know that Charlie is awesome. But uh, with that, we will get over to Al Jorgensen. The band ministry is currently on tour and they have an album out called Americant. But I do want to just... 
give you a preview of next week. We are going to have William Shatner, yes, the one and only Captain Kirk, T.J. Hooker, and well, comedic actor I would call it, but is that is that even a thing? Uh, also, um, Jack Blades of Night Ranger, and we will include Steve Lukather. And well, I asked him about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and his. Reaction and his answer is priceless. And if you are a, well, how can I put it? If you have sensitive ears in terms of languages or language that might be a little more spicy, uh, you might just want to prepare yourself because it is not a, a very uh, prim and proper discussion of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and how can you take that play seriously when bands like Foreigner? Iron Maiden, Sticks, Scorpions, and I know some will argue, and may, you might argue with me, Alan, uh, Def Leppard, Motley Crue. I mean, whatever you might think of Motley Crue's music, Alan, or, or Def Leppard. I'm not, I, but do, you, do you like them, by the way? I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm sort of facetious. I, but I, I, I'm not even going to go there. Um, you know, and Matt Langer made brilliant records with, uh, with Def Leppard, and they sound fabulous. And, and they, they did affect. You know, American culture, and they did create a scene. I mean, Motley Crue created a scene. They, yeah. They, yeah. We, well, let's get to the real point here. The real point is, and occasionally I have an opinion, as you know, but my opinion is that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as a concept, is completely absurd because I am really uncomfortable about institutionalizing a medium and a form of self-expression that at its best and its most powerful counters all institutions and questions all institutions and is outsider music as music for free spirits. And to have this phony institution is just wrong. It is. And we've discussed this, but Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden because, uh, you know, Steve Harris was on the show recently and he said, hey, listen, I, I don't think about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's, it's not on my radar. I mean, you know, paraphrasing what he said. But Bruce called it vulgar and essentially said, if they uh, induct us or elect us, whatever the word is, I'm not going to show up. And it's funny because when Axel said I'm not going to show up, people went, <gasps> and when and when others said that, they went, <gasps> And when Bruce said it, and I and I believe rightly so, they went, "Yeah, good for you, Bruce. Way to go." Yeah, and and fair enough, Bruce. Fair dinkum on you. But you know the other the other aspect of this is you do realize that I think they charge you something like fifteen thousand dollars a seat to go to be inducted into their basically their business. I don't think so. I am not <laughs> going to go and eat rubber chicken that cost me $15,000 so that somebody else can put on a show and make money out of it and whatever. I mean, no, just the whole thing is wrong. It is, and, and they've sold their broadcast rights to HBO. And so if you attend the rock and roll induction and you take a, a video on your cell phone or whatever, they they go after you. You you won't find it on YouTube. They they prosecute and, and, and have it torn down and taken down so they can do this thing for HBO. 
And then they make their money off the back of the Guns N' Roses songs or the car songs or the cheap trick songs. And, and those bands, what they won't tell you is that they have to renounce their rights. And I know a few years back, Kiss was inducted and, and everybody's like, oh, you should play with Peter and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you know what? And I don't know if this is what Gene and Paul said necessarily, but why would they give up their rights to rock and roll all night and to whatever, shout it out loud and have HBO run it? you know, 10 times a year and then send all the money over to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It, it's, it, it is a, it, what's a scam. <laughs> I think you might be right on that. You know, and with all that complaining, I do have to have a caveat and make, make mention of a little thing. Uh, my, my little darling Slash actually said something very sweet when he was inducted. And I can't remember exactly, but I seem to remember him saying something along the lines of, you know, he wanted to thank me personally for taking a band built for failure and making a success out of it, um, which was just, that touched me. That touched my heart. But the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as an idea, as a concept, and then Cleveland, I mean, come on, you know, I've had some great times in Cleveland, but would I erect a museum to rock and roll there? No, I'd have taken the Capitol Tower in Hollywood and built that into a museum if you want a museum. You know, I, I, I'm I'm not necessarily going to disagree with you, but I'm thinking of all sort of the rock cities and the ones we look back on, and <laughs> I, I probably would have gone with Detroit. I mean, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, Nugent, Cooper, uh, Kiss, even though they're not from there, they, they, that's sort of where the fans said, yeah, and put them on the map, and then they wrote Detroit. So there's just so well, much you know, stuff. You know, what, you, know what, you know what the thinking was, don't you? Well, yeah, it was a well, it capital... Was, it, was, it was because Alan Freed supposedly put on the first rock and roll show in Cleveland. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and that was basically... You know the excuse for it but i bet you know we're talking about a huge building that costs millions of dollars my god i bet there's all kinds of interesting things going on in in that i mean we have an arena here in town that sits empty all the time a huge taxpayer boondoggle and i bet there was that going on as well yeah and that's why it was in cleveland you know that people looked after each other to put it there but you know as a concept i don't buy it yeah, and I'll say I'll say this. I am glad, though, and, and I know this might sound wrong, but I'm glad it's not in L.A. or in Hollywood or in New York because they have, you know, you've got Broadway and you've got Sunset Strip. You've got, you've got a whole bunch of stuff. And, and, you know, maybe Cleveland's a good place or not a good place, but I, I see it in Detroit or, or one of those kinds of cities. And, and it, you know, it's, it's as if you were putting it in, in Canada. Everybody goes, well, obviously it goes in Toronto. No, it's nice sometimes to just put it somewhere else, and, and so that's good, but... Eh. But since we're talking about people that, are, that fight against the institution, and, and, and I, I don't want to say rant, but, but have a point of view, uh, Al Jorgensen, of course, of Ministry has one. And the new album, well, you know, listen, uh, everybody's saying that it's an attack on Donald Trump and all that. Well, well, we talk about that, and we talk about th this trilogy that he did in earlier years where it was focusing on George Bush, and we talk about that. And so... We have ranted about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so let us get over to Al Jorgensen, who he's not ranting, but he has a point of view, and Americant, according to him, here is the one, the only, Al. We are speaking with Al Jorgensen of the band Ministry. Of course, the latest album is Americant. 
Al, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Hello to the northern border. How are you guys doing? We are doing good up here in Canada. Of course, the show is heard all through North America. And uh, yeah, it's it's not we're not the land of snow yet, though uh, you did take one of your titles, the land of rape and honey, from our beautiful country. You referenced it from Saskatchewan. Yes, from, yes, from Saskatoon, of course. Um, but uh, you are no longer viewed in the lower 48 as the land of snow anymore. You are now viewed as the promised land of cannabis. So congratulations on that. Yeah, we're, we're slowly making, uh, making our, our move after uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. So let, let's start off here, because I know you're on tour, but let's start off with Americant. It is, of course, uh, the first album since uh, Mike passed away. And I know that at the time that he passed away, you said, all right, ministry is done. It's time to put this thing to bed. Maybe not the exact words, but certainly the the sentiment. What sort of got you going and saying, okay, I need to get back into the studio. I need to make another ministry album. We're not going to make an an Al solo album. We're not going to. I need to go back and make this album. Um, What was that moment of that, that epiphany that we went Okay, we got to do this. Okay, well, there was two reasons why uh, I, I really didn't see a point in pursuing ministry any further after Mike's passing. Uh, one of them was obviously Mike's passing. He was my best friend and my right-hand man in the band for many, many years. Uh, the other one was I had a lot of health issues, and uh, and they were undisclosed at the time. And um, uh, I was... Uh, basically bleeding out about uh, a pint of blood a day for a couple of years there. And really people couldn't figure out why. And then finally uh, they found a, a burst artery in my stomach and this and that and all these ulcer problems and all that. And so I had surgery and once I got fixed up, you know, uh, I felt a lot better. And, and of course the passage of time, uh, you know, uh, you know, at the time that I was asked uh, whether ministry would continue after Mike, it was literally within six hours, somebody had gotten my phone number. Uh, I was just still trying to deal with funeral arrangements, and they're asking me about, you know, ministry's future, and I was like, well, you know, uh, dude, uh, yeah, there is no ministry. Right now, I'm concentrating on this, and that went viral. Everyone's like, oh, ministry's done, this and that, but... uh between my health and, and Mike's passing and, 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 you know, the immediacy of being immediately asked uh, during the actual funeral, uh, you know, uh, progression was, was just a bit untasteful. So that being said, uh, a couple of years later, I did a, an album called Surgical Meth Machine, not under the ministry name, but certainly under the, the ministry spirit of things. And um, uh, it was just my way of getting my toe back in the water. Uh, as I was healing from my surgeries. And then November 9th, 2016 happened, and uh, we got this president named Donald J. Trump, which kind of made me realize that maybe I should articulate my anger and my feelings through the way that I know how best to express it, which is probably through music. Uh, So this wasn't like a a new trailblazing thing for me, but it was cathartic in the sense that I was able to express um, feelings, opinions, and thoughts that I had about what got us to this point. So 
I think those three things combined between the health issues, Mikey's passing and Trump being president. Um, yeah, it kind of got me to do this Americant album and, um, and I'm glad I did. I feel better because of it. <laughs> yeah. So, well, okay. So let me just deal with one of those things first here. L let's talk quickly about the health issues. Is that something that you you're struggling with as you go forward with the tour and, and new albums or is it something that it's in the past and, you're a hundred percent and we're good to go and fans shouldn't worry. Oh, I'm a hundred percent. I'm, I'm actually feeling better physically, health wise, mentally, emotionally, everything than I have, um, at least 20 years. So, um, yeah, expect a lot more things to be coming out of uh, the ministry camp, uh, in the next few years. Um, I'm, I'm more focused than ever. It's, it's very different than being young and angry and, and you know, uh, an anarchistic in the sense of like you're just angry about something that you don't know how to channel it. You you shake your fist at clouds and you just know things suck and, and you're not sure why and you're angry and you do records. Well, now I'm just as angry, but now I know how to channel it into ways that uh, get voter registration drives, get things accomplished and, and, and start uh, doing things in a constructive way instead of a, a nihilistic way. So uh, I think a lot of things are going to be coming out of the ministry camp over the next few years. As far as touring, I've never had so much fun touring. I didn't know touring was this thing that you didn't have to go up and throw up blood after every show. So this is like a new thing for me. I'm actually digging touring now. So, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah. Rest assured, uh, fans of ministry, the, there's a lot more to come. This, this book is not closed yet. So, so let me ask you then about, about the art and the making of, of the art, which is the music. You came from the eighties, that time of, the, the, the Reagan era and, you know, MTV and just a lot of hair metal and a lot of sort of, uh, you know, frivolous kind of music making. Where did you decide to, where, where did it turn to this? You had to have a voice and, and get into political um, sayings rather than just say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to sit here and write some cutesy songs about, hey, baby, baby, let's rock and roll all night. Why did you sort of go into that other lyrical direction and a lot darker? Because a lot of your contemporaries, especially in the 80s, made a ton of money writing those Hey Baby Baby songs, right? Um, I, yeah, I, I do agree, but it, it's it's everyone's choice. It's what you feel comfortable doing. The 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 unique thing about uh, the ministry saga, if you will, was that, um, for instance, a lot of the songs for uh, The Land of Grape and Honey, which just right. turned 30 years uh, yep since it's since it's released but the funny thing is that people don't know is before that first arista album right. which is hey baby baby stuff right you had two um, two albums so, like that well yeah basically about an album and a half but but at any rate as those songs were written before that arista album and that's what got assigned was the fact that we were doing something unique at the time and then as soon as you get signed to a label they immediately say, well, okay, you need to cut your hair. You need to dress up in suits. You need to do this. We're going to appoint you a producer. We're going to hire you a band. We're going to hire you background singers. We're going to write the songs for you. By the way, here's a song called Work for Love. I want you to sing this. I want you to do that. And I was 20 years old at the time, and I was just like, well, it sure beats the crap out of living in, in a squat loft on the south side of Chicago um, 
with snow coming through my roof in the winter. Um, you know, we had no electricity. We used to have to steal extension cords and plug them in a block down at another construction site that had electricity. So that sure seemed like a sweet deal. But after about, you know, a record, record and a half of this stuff, I was like, uh, you know, this, this isn't what I signed up for. And this isn't what you signed me for. You signed me because of all these songs. So after I got released from that contract, then we started uh, revisiting and reworking all the Land of Rape and Honey songs, which then came out on Warner Brothers, which gave us a chance uh, to actually become what we were initially supposed to be before getting sidetracked by corporate interests. So it, it's a it's a very strange, bass-ackward route that we took in our career in the sense that we basically sold out before we started. You hear all these wonderful stories about these bands that like, you know, are doing the coolest stuff ever and staying true to their beliefs. And finally are just sick of watching everyone else make money on, on their ideas. And then they sell out and they write a Hey baby, baby song, as you put it. Uh, we wrote our Hey baby, babies first and then decided that wasn't for us and went the other way. So it's, it's completely backwards, but that just seems to be par for the course for me. It does. So so let's talk about quickly the 30th anniversary of The Land of Rape and Honey. You go from Twitch with those kind of songs into this change, into, you know, a, a, let's call it a darker sound. Was there any fear that this could be the end of the band? This could be the end of me? Are fans going to understand this in a context of Def Leppard and Bon Jovi and Warrant? Are fans going to get this? Or were you like, no, uh, this is my vision, and I'm just going to do it regardless? Fear at all? No. Like like I said, originally, Land of Rape and Honey was our vision, and we got sidetracked. And so okay. I was actually angry and more adamant than ever to, to do what we originally set out to do. Then, if you fail, at least you failed on your own terms. So there was no fear of that. And, and furthermore, I was so already jaded and disillusioned by the music industry at that point in time and, and the way it was constructed back then that um, I always just wanted to be a teacher. I was going to teach political science or history at a high school or a college near you. I mean, that's what I went to college for. I wanted to be a teacher. And so this rock thing actually kind of got in my way. And I'll tell you what, unfortunately, the rock thing pays better than a teacher's salary, which is really I think kind of unjust to start with, but at either at either rate, I wasn't afraid of failure for releasing that kind of stuff because I, I didn't want to be here anyways. I wanted to be a teacher. And and what's happened over the last 30, 35 years is I've been able to incorporate uh, some of some of um, the, the teaching paradigm within my music. So I feel like I'm getting the best of both worlds by by making it political and, and awareness records uh, if you will, um, you know, it, it's like you, you, you get to get out your your musical chops and, and things that interest you sonically uh, with an agenda that you would have been doing anyways in a classroom. So um, it, it actually turned out really great, but it was it was a pretty rough road to get there. Like I said, we were sidetracked for a couple of years by corporate interest. So it was an interesting way to start a career. Yeah, it really was. So so let's look at Land of Rape and Honey. It's 30 years since its release. It has become, boy, the blueprint, I guess, for, for this kind of music, for industrial metal, for, for, you know. 
what was it about the album that that attracted so many people to it and and talk to me about creating that sound because again i'll I'll, I'll reference back the sounds at the time were were very melodic they were very cheesy they were you know that sort of 80s synthesizer sound that you can recognize right away um just talk to me about that musical direction and the fact that here we are 30 years later and so many bands so many artists look back and say yeah that's where it started that's the band that's that album well, because I, I didn't take my influences from uh, a, a musical direction. I wasn't listening to the hair bands or, or you know, the, the, the current uh, flavor of the month at the time. My interests were more in, in literary artists, such as William Burroughs and Brian Zisson, uh things like this with their cut-up methods. And uh, we were actually doing, um, you know, that, that whole album is just cut-ups of actual... Um, celluloid tape, you know, on a quarter inch, actually doing the splicing and cutting things together and, and doing experimental things. So it was, it was, it was really inspirational stuff to work on because uh, we weren't sure if anybody had done this before. We didn't really care. We just knew that we wanted to pursue it and that it sounded good. Um, and, 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 you know, we took it from there, but like uh, there, there was no like, any expectation of this going anywhere. As a matter of fact, when, when I did that record, I was just like, well, great. I can't wait to get, you know, back on my uh, trajectory towards being a professor or a teacher. And so I can get this thing out of my system and go back to where I belong. And then oddly enough, it took off and people noticed that, well, you know, this is, um, this is some kind of heady stuff because uh, it didn't sound like other things at the time because we weren't taking from other things that were flavor of the month at the time, you know, all bands start to sound alike, you know, after a while, because they all steal from each other. Art will devour itself as they say. Um, and, and we were coming from a whole different viewpoint of more like literary geniuses and, and the things that they did with, uh, the mashup of words, content and thought. And so those are the things that went into rape and honey, which made it kind of a special record. They really did. Now, you have said in the past that the editing took weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, talk to me about the technological aspect these days with Pro Tools and being able to fly stuff out. Is it easier to push boundaries now? Have you explored the technology to, to your satisfaction yet? Or have you still are you still looking to get in there and really sort of pushing the Pro Tools and, and just trying to be even more experimental? Well, it's an interesting question that you just posed. Um, here, take this as an example. Back when I first started, there was maybe one brand of synthesizers, two guitar pedals, a couple delay units. That's about it. That was industry standard. That, that was what was available. And yet every band seemed to sound different, like in the late 60s and 70s. Every band sounded different with limited equipment. All of a sudden, you have this technological advance where everyone has access to it and a myriad of choices, and yet every band sounds the same now. So, you know, it, it's it's difficult, man. I mean, I, I take Pro Tools now. Obviously, I don't spend time on a splicing block for like literally three, four months at a time. Um, but uh, you you try and push it, but there's so much you could do. But I do think 
that the availability of choices and, and the, the fact that I think artists have gotten lazy in the sense that they don't want to push boundaries, um, you know, the, the, this myriad of choices of all this technology, things are sounding more and more and more the same, you know, each and every day. Like, for instance, I just saw a pedal the other day that's out on the market that literally has like a ministry button on the pedal. And yes, they took our sound and fabricated it for guitars, but how lazy is that? I mean, why do you just want to sound like ministry? You should sound like yourself. If anything, you should take the ministry patch, run it through some effects and all that, and make it your own, put your own stamp on it, and use that as, as a template, but not just settle for a, a, a prefabricated patch, which I think that, that uh, artists and musicians have just gotten lazy over the years. And a lot of that, I think, is social media, where it's just like take the easy way out. I mean, like uh, people don't mind living in poverty as long as they have the, um, you know, hope that if they buy a lottery ticket once a week, they could be a millionaire that way. Instead of like doing something creative that would propel you into making your own money, you just want something that's easily available and, and something that you can just push a button and you can be a star. And, and, and they promote that through social media and, and mainstream media with like things like America's got talent or America's voice or whatever all these shows are, you know, this is, this is their big break. It's like a one trick pony thing. And, and nobody has time to develop any kind of, um, you know, the, the whole thing is like, okay, it, I find it, funny it's it's i call it god's cruel joke that uh, when you're young and your body is supple and you're healthy and everything's going good you have shit for brains you're not sure of anything yet you know it's not right you know you're angry about something but you're not sure what to do about it then when you start getting emotionally and psychologically and intellectually more adept at navigating through the world then your body starts falling apart because you're old. It's, it's God's cruel joke. I mean, that's what I went through over the last 10 years. My body fell apart and, and emotionally and psychologically, you know, I got off drugs and I was trying, trying my best to get healthy, but didn't understand what was happening to my body. So, uh, it's just it's just like this weird dichotomy that you have to like somehow navigate through. Do you think that that all the technology that's available to artists now, in fact, stifles creativity? Well, let me put it this way. When the Internet started, it was called, oh, my God, this is the dawn of the age of information. And through corporate interests, they've somehow turned that age of information into the age of disinformation. And so people got lazy. They don't, I don't think they understand the possibilities of things like uh, uh, the social media or artificial intelligence and shit. We really have to be careful on how that's being used because it, it can be weaponized for things that basically tear the fabric of society and humanity apart. And I think we're seeing that in, in spades right now uh, with what's going on, not only with elections, but just like, just, uh, you know, a cultural um, ad advancements or not advancements, actually the opposite uh, of just people are lazy. They just want to be spoon fed because uh, when you get online, uh, you're more likely to go to YouTube and watch a cat playing piano or a rat dragging a pizza down the stairs. than you are going to be uh, to find actual information on something that might be pertinent to your life now or later. You know what I'm saying? It's, yep. it's just become this like dumbed down 
you know, social media circus that, that, that we've become accustomed to and nobody wants to provocative, provocatively challenge uh, the possibilities of having that much information at your disposal. Yeah, and in fact, being around for the beginning of the internet, we're actually getting less and less information. You know, you used to go on to one of these web crawlers or one of these things, and you could get sort of the entire world at your fingertips, and now they have these targeted searches. And I know for me, doing this rock stuff, whenever I go to Google, the first results I get is rock stuff. And it's like, yeah, but I want to see other stuff, Google. Stop doing this to me. Um, right, right, exactly. But then people get lazy, and you get used to it. They they bludgeon you into a sedentary position. They just bludgeon you. They keep, you know, this is what you ordered before. So this is what you should order again. You shouldn't try anything new. Just keep ordering the same thing, whether it's Google, Amazon, this and that, all these, you know, the, the corporations are basically dumbing down society. And then all the governments are obviously cutting educational funds and all this. This is no accident. This is by plan. I'm not like some kind of conspiracy theorist, dude. But this is actually happening. You can see it by by the targeting that you just mentioned, the specific targeting on your personal traits. But how can your personal traits grow if you just keep feeding into the same echo chamber? Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I know we're going to run out of time, so let me get over here to, to the whole political stuff. Of course, 2004, Houses of the Moly, Rio Grande Blood, Last Sucker, sort of a – well, not sort of. It was an anti-Bush sort of trilogy. Is Americant the first of a trilogy? Is that something that you want to do again and have sort of a continuum in terms of message and voice? And, and, and talk to me sort of about that original trilogy and, and what was this sort of, I don't want to say purpose, but, you know, the, the thought behind it. And where do we go from here with Americant moving into 2019, 2020? And if you've already mentioned you're working on new music as we speak. I'm glad you asked that. Um, the Bush trilogy, and, and by all intents and purposes, that's what it was. Um, since he was there for eight years, I managed to get three albums out. But by the third album, if you really pay attention, The Last Sucker, um, I almost felt sorry for the guy. Because we, we can't question uh, the fact that it, he's just a talking head. Bush, Reagan, Trump... Bush senior, whatever. That's not the problem. And I started realizing that in a big way by the third record of that trilogy by last sucker. I was, I felt as, as sorry for Bush as I did for the people that he sent to a needless war to die. I mean, just equally as sorry because he's just as duped as we are. We're all the last sucker. So that being said, uh, when I went into the surgical meth machine record after Mikey died, it was all about the things that we just talked about, social media and the dumbing down of society. By the time this Trump album came out, yes, of course, we're, we're absolutely aghast at having somebody with blatantly racist, misogynistic and fascist tendencies leading what is considered to be, you know, the great democracy of, of civilization. Uh, this, this is, this is horrible, but once again, Trump is just a symptom. He is not the cause. He's not, he's not, uh, you know, the target of my ire and angst. Uh, Trump is just a symptom of what we've become as a society. And we really need to question ourselves instead of just blaming Bush or blaming Trump 
or, you know, and, and any of the folks that you have in Canada as well. I mean, look, uh, we, we've gone through Rob Ford and Toronto and, and, and this and that. I mean, it, it's just this kind of culture, and, and let alone all the countries in, in Europe that are falling under the, the fascist flag. It's because people just want to be told that things are okay. And the fascists are really good at doing that. That's in their playbook. They, they just tell you, only we can protect you. We will make sure you're okay. And, and, and people accept that because they're tired, because they have to work two jobs uh, just to make ends meet. And, and they don't want to deal with politics. They want a shining hero on a horse to come in. Trump is not that guy, you know, but he's also this part of the system. It's just, it's just he's a talking head for, for the, the, what, what the corporation's agendas are uh, in, in this culture. So I, I really don't think this is an anti-Trump album as opposed to that Bush trilogy. And like I said, even the last Bush record, I actually felt sorry for the poor bastard. So here we are. We need to find the systematic faults instead of the talking head that promotes them. And, and I think that's important. Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, talk to me about actually putting the album together lyrically. Was it were were these things that were sitting around for a while, and you sort of said, "Okay, I'm going to put them all together," and Americant it is, or did you sit down at, at at the table one day and say, "Okay, I've got to make a new album. I'm I've got these targets in mind, or I've got this creativity in mind." Like, what was the process in terms of putting the album together and, and getting that lyrical content out there? Was it inspiration or was it perspiration? Well, it, it's funny when you deal in topical matters, uh, you always, uh, want to avoid being immediately dated or, you know, uh, you, you can, in other words, you want to avoid obviousness and it's hard to do when there's a new headline every day with this corrupt administration that we have down here. There's a new headline. Every, I, could, I could write a song every single day, but you want to avoid that. And you, you tend to start going towards more universal themes and, and at least for me and, and, you know, I, I don't, I, I feel comfortable like speaking in, in the political language since that's what I was trained for. That's what I went to school for. Um, I don't, um, you know, slag anyone else that isn't political, um, or, or has a differing political viewpoint than me. That's entirely up to them. I think that artists should do whatever they feel comfortable doing. You know what I'm saying? Like, if I forced a political album, I think it would be pretty crappy uh, in the end result. Um, these are things that you have to be passionate about. If you're not passionate about that, that's okay, too. If you want to sing about personal stuff, whether it be relationships, addictions, deaths, or whatever happens in day-to-day -day life, that's fine. I, I don't begrudge anybody that, but I do feel comfortable um, with the knowledge that I've obtained over 60 years and in the political format and the corporate format that, that I, this is, this is where I swim. So uh, it was kind of a no brainer. The only difficult thing about the lyrics for Americant and, and the uh, um, kind of overall messaging was just to make sure it's not dated which is which is the most difficult part because like as like uh, we go back to land of rape and honey or mine is terrible saying the taste or psalm 69 um a lot of that stuff is not dated and and that's on purpose you definitely want to avoid 
to me, uh, what I wanted to on this album was avoid singing about individual scandals, uh, because then they become dated. You talk about the overall system that created those scandals and things like that, so they become timeless. And and that was an important, um, you know, reasoning behind uh, the, the lyrical content on this last album. Yeah, and, and, and very, well, if I can, very wise and very smart, because you're right, once something becomes dated with the references, you go... And why am I listening to this 20 years later? You know, it's, you know, you have to consult history books all of a sudden. Um, I know the whole album is sort of one piece with, and I'll call them chapters for the lack of a better word, but you've got one on there called We're Tired of It. Uh, I mentioned it just before we got started. What a fantastic track. I mean, just, you just, it, you kick it up a notch, as, as Emil Legacy would used to say. It's just great stuff. Um <laughs> I know we're running out of time, so I'm just going to ask. Uh, a lot of bands are in this reunion, or not reunion, sorry, farewell mode, whether it's Elton John or Kiss or so. You're you're now 60. You're now, do you start thinking about that or hell no? No way. I'm going to uh, keep going until I'm, I'm Chuck Berry here. Well, uh, I don't have my Nostradamus cap on, so I can't predict the future. But uh, uh, I will say this. Yes, of course, the thought has crossed my mind, especially after reaching out and, and reuniting with uh, people from the past due to this Wax Tracks release of the documentary with people like Paul Barker and Chris Connolly. And, and yes, we, we, the, the thought has come up and the conversations have occurred of, of doing um, a kind of a nostalgia thing, uh, which would be good cathartically for us as well as the fans, I think, it's all good to, to wrap a, a ribbon and tie a bow around the whole thing, but that day isn't here yet. I still have shit to do, so good. let's take it from there. We'll take it from there. Uh, Alan, absolute, absolute pleasure, and of course, uh, you are in Toronto on uh, December 2nd at the Rebel Club. Hopefully, we will see you in Montreal at some point, and of course, the tour runs all the way up to Christmas, and then... I'm assuming you'll be back out on the road in 2019, and just uh, absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you, but actually, one one correction: oh. we will not be on the road in 2019 because as soon as the tour is over, I go right back in the studio and we're doing a new ministry album. So look for that in 2019. There you go. Well, you know, listen, it was it was a hope to see you on the road in 2019, but a, but a new <laughs> album is new album is even better. Thank you, sir. Great, great pleasure. Cheers now. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right, you take care. Bye bye now. Cheers. Bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a very big thank you to Ministries, Al Jorgensen. Do check out the album Americant. And now we shall move over to our final interview of the day, a proper interview with Richard Lloyd. His new album is The Countdown, out via Plowboy Records. You can listen to the first single, Whisper, and, and well, in fact, the whole album since it is out now, but he was part of the New York City Punk Legends television and their debut album, Marky Moon, uh, 1977. Alan, you were around and active back in those days, those good old days, I guess we call them. Um, I'm trying, right? But but do you remember television? Do you remember Marky Moon? Do you remember? Yes, I do. Do, do I you do remember 1977? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I remember 1977 remarkably clearly and well. In fact, um, in fact, it was 
January the 8th of 1977 that I first set foot in America in, in Manhattan. Oh. But I remember Marky Moon because I had uh, a little radio show on WINZ in Miami um, in 78-79. And one day I had a guy called Robert Fripp come on and, for an interview. And basically he took over the whole show for a couple of hours and was incredibly entertaining and interesting and one of the things that he really wanted to do was pick his own music and I remember very clearly that he had a big rave about Marky Moon and Mr. Lloyd. Um, he thought he was a really interesting player and had a tremendous future in front of him. So yeah, I remember the record. We yeah. should go and talk to Richard. Yeah, we should. Yeah, you know what? We we've talked a lot about uh, Dave Ellis, not Dave Ellison, Dave Mustaine, Megadeth, and uh, by the way, uh, for the folks listening to uh, the the minutia and the detail of the show, as I was introducing uh, Dave Mustaine, you heard some tippy tapper in the uh, background, and uh, yeah, the dog had made it their way into the uh, recording area and started howling and growling and so so i hope you enjoyed that yes i chose to leave it in uh so we had uh alan mitch max mustaine richard al jorgensen it is an entire cavalcade of characters at this point we're we're sort of like um what, what do they call it uh, theater theater radio back in the in the 40s and 50s what, what, what was it called well, i don't know if it i don't know if it's theater radio but uh we're probably going to be in the doghouse for my comment about Chinese leftovers, but since we've mentioned leftovers again, let's go look in the fridge and see what's there. Yeah, let's go do that. And, and well, you're in the doghouse for that. I'm probably in the doghouse for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, I'm assuming that my press credentials and my invitation are now revoked, much like, uh, what's his name, uh, DaCosta <laughs> from CNN. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so let's get over to, let's get off the politics. Let's get over to former television guitarist Richard Lloyd and his new album, Countdown. And by the way, he, he's not former television. I mean, he, he is the television guitarist. The band is former, yeah. but, he's, but yeah. he is the guitarist. So here is Le Seul et Unique, the one, the only Richard Lloyd. We are speaking with guitarist Richard Lloyd. The new album is called The Countdown. And uh, Richard, uh, before I get a chance to say hello, I have heard the album. I've listened to it all the way through. It is brilliant, spectacular, a fun, fun listen. Uh, whisper, I can tell, just my heart. To, and uh, Wow. Uh, that's well, all I'm going to say. Wow. Yeah, so. Wow. That's great. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, so let, let's, let's get through. We do too, right? So let, let's talk about this sure. record and, and, and how it comes together. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, in fact, let's just start with that question. Uh, talk to me about the collection of songs on this. Is this something that's been written in the last year, two years, three years? Or do you go back in the vault, back to the television days and, and have these little bits and pieces and say, okay, how do you sort of get this album put together? Well, there's about half of the songs are brand new. Uh, written for the record or recently in any case. And uh, a couple of the songs that you mentioned, Just My Heart is very, very old. Um, Smoke, uh, a ballad is, I wrote it in 72 before television ever got together. And uh, a couple, oh, um, I Can Tell was an outtake of alchemy. Never wouldn't fit on the, the record. 
And then the other ones were new, and uh, the countdown was ju- the the song, the track was written almost as we went into the studio. I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't. It was kind of off the cuff, an adventuresome uh, jam, as it were. But it has a, a structure. At this point in your career, when you're putting together a new album. Do you sit down and think, okay, I've got this fan base that that loved television, that loved my early solo stuff. I need to sort of write mm-hmm. something, or do you have an incredible freedom to do whatever you want and just be who you are? Well, I have to have that freedom to do just what comes to me. Obviously, I I don't pander. I mean, even a song like Whisper, which is uh, getting a few spins here and there and uh, people are liking it and uh, you know that came about to this riff that I had that I just loved to play and uh, added some words on top of it and a chorus and uh, there we go some songs write themselves uh, very quickly you put your lick your finger and put it up to catch some lightning and sometimes it uh, strikes and other times, it's a very tedious process for me. Right. Um, in terms of, of getting these songs out in front of a public and playing them live, uh, what are sort of the plans in terms of touring? And, and, and does the tour sort of you mm-hmm. throw in a couple of these new songs and then play the, the, the old greatest hits? Or do you really want to sort of focus on getting this collection of songs in front of an audience? Well, right now, I only have two dates in November. We're going to start touring in the, and after the new year because you've got Christmas and all of the rest uh, happening. And I'm going to be doing press in New York and California, et cetera, um, for it. But um, the two dates we have, they're going to play the entire record and a couple of other songs. And uh, then I don't know, you know, I'll mix um, those songs in with uh, a number of other ones from, you know, all parts of the my catalog and career. And, and it's been a spectacular career. Uh, I do want to start talking a little bit about, about the career and, and television and all those bands. But first, mm-hmm. one of the guys that, that gave you a start or, or was sort of, you know, uh, I guess instrumental in getting the band before an audience was Hilly Crystal. Uh, talk to me a little bit about Hilly and CBGBs. And, and what did he mean? Because he wasn't just a club owner. I mean, from my mm-hmm. perspective. What did he mean to you, and what sort of did he mean to, to New York and to that scene? Well, I, I love the guy. You know, he gave us an opportunity to play original music when there was really no place to play original music in the city. Um, you only got touring acts coming through with records, or you played, uh, you know, bar bands uh, doing covers or blues, and uh, he was willing to let us. Uh, basically the kids came in and took the place over and uh, our manager at the time terry ork had a great deal to do with it he and terry booked the place for the first three or so years but hilly's an institution now i mean sadly he's uh, uh passed away but uh cbgb's was an incredible scene F- for my money it was like hosting a three-year-long uh new year's eve party it got bigger and bigger and bigger as we went along until the place was completely packed all the time. And we only, at the beginning, we only had two bands play per night. So it might be uh, Blondie 
and the Ramones, then Blondie and the Ramones again. And you paid your money and you got to stay all night. So you got to see your two bands twice or television and the talking heads. The talking heads would play, then television would play, then talking heads, then television would play. Um, so it was a very exciting time. And we wanted the woodshed, something in manner of the, I mean, everybody knows about the Beatles going to Hamburg and having to play five sets. So we thought, well, how can we do that? You know, play in front of an audience and build an audience. And uh, two times a night, you know, worked for us. And then we got multiple days. We would play uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that's a lot of playing time. And uh, that really made a difference in the band and the bands. Plus, you cross-pollinated. You know, you got a band, you got people who like television, got to uh, hear the talking heads and fall in love with them or vice versa. And you always had this build of cross-pollinization of the audience. And the audience members were not, um, you know, from the sticks. They were mostly uh, young, entrepreneuric, uh, budding rock photographers and journalists and uh, actors and uh, writers. And some of the Warhol crowd came in and came down. So we had this great match of uh, the artists on the stage, which wasn't very high, of course, and the uh, members of the audience, there was like an equilibrium there, not like a giant stage and and you go buy your ticket and you gawk at the band and then you go home, you know? So let me ask you, since you mentioned the bands, you mentioned the Ramones and Blondie, Talking Head, Patti Smith. Was it sure. was it a, a camaraderie where you were all you know all for one and one for all and you were part of this scene, or was it competition where it was like we got to blow that talking heads off the stage and that son of a gun better not come into our dressing room? I mean, what was sort of oh, the God, vibe? No. no, okay, <laughs> no, we were you know there was com- friendly competition, very friendly competition. I mean. Personally, I got along with Dee Dee and Joey and Tommy of the Ramones, and uh, Johnny was a little standoffish. Uh, The Talking Heads, of course, we we loved each other, and uh, we did a lot of dates together. Patti Smith and television did a tremendous amount of dates together and, you know, had a mutual respect and admiration for each other. So uh, Blondie and uh, the rest of the bands all were... uh, in a certain light competition, but uh, we knew that we were all starting out. We were all trying to build our craft and build our audience. And it was better to be on friendly terms with people than to cut through kind of, you know, demanding that the opening act. See, that's one of the things about the two sets per night. The opening act is diffused because the opening act gets the first slot and the third slot. And the uh, headliner, so to speak, gets the second and fourth slot. The third slot might be called the headlining slot. You, you see what I'm saying? Right. So, so you got to be the headliner and the and the opener on the same night. Yeah, except for the closer. One was an opener. And one right. Was a closer. <laughs> one was a closer. But in the meantime, you, you got a lot. You got all the bands twice. So we, it was uh, totally great. Um, just quickly, Marky e. Moon, and I know you've, you've spoken about this uh, quite a bit over the years, but mm-hmm. 
Uh, Classic Rock sure. called it a major touchstone for all bands and impossible to listen to the mm-hmm. strokes without hearing television, Richard's Lloyd's guitar sound or Franz Ferdinand. Uh, talk to me about that album because another sort of remarkable fact is that since it came out, it's never been out of print. It's It's been constantly right. be done and brought which is amazing when you think about it. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to me about that album and, and going into it, what was sort of the mindset in terms of, you know, do we just sort of make 10 songs? You know, what was sort of well, the mindset? We've yeah. been playing that then that was on the, on the very tag of playing, you know, multiple times at CBGB's maybe, you know, hundreds of times. And so we knew exactly what we wanted to uh, sound like. It was basically our live sound, but we were going into a studio and uh, we'd done a number of demos. So we'd gotten familiar with the recording process and what we didn't want and what we wanted. And uh, we got a great engineer, uh, Andy Johns, and uh, I did a lot of double tracking, which uh, gives some of it a chimey quality. Um, there's one song where the, my solo is actually, uh, the melody is, uh, eight tracks of me <laughs> on guide, the end of guiding light. That last coda is eight tracks. Uh, you know, I was thinking of Phil Spector and, uh, the you wall know, the, of sound. That, the wall of sound, the buildup of that, but, but all very stark too, like a jazz record. No, no fancy effects, no gated snares, no, you know, uh, effects on the guitars principally. I mean, no, there were no effects. We just plugged into amps. There was one time where we wanted to rent a, uh, a Leslie, but it was too expensive. So Andy John swung a microphone around his head like a lasso. Got to love Andy. It didn't really, it didn't really, I love Andy. It didn't really pan out. We couldn't use it because he refused to swing around the a good microphone. He was afraid of damaging it and then getting charged. So he used a pretty crappy microphone and nearly whacked me in the head with it. But it was a lot of fun to try these kind of things. And uh, as long as it didn't uh, you know, get in the way of the band's knowledge of its own music, then we were all for it. On the new album, The Countdown, uh, you know, technology yeah. has obviously moved forward from those days. Uh, we have access to Pro Tools and you can fly stuff in and, and, and comping right. tracks is super easy. Um, was there a temptation to use a lot of sort of studio trickery or in terms of production elements? Talk to mm. me a little bit about The Countdown. Is it more sort of plug and play or is there a lot of, hey, we can comp 35 tracks if we want i mean what was talking about the production on this one it's it's pro tools but uh, i don't know if you're a gear uh, head i am and we did the basics uh, that is the drums bass and one guitar uh we did that in two days to all 10 tracks and then we had a day of uh keyboards then i had two days of guitar overdubs and uh, vo- half a day of vocals and it was done. Then there was this uh, matter of mixing it. So we went through it really quickly and it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of production tricks done with it either. And I like that. Um, you know, mostly there's two guitars and, uh, 
a rhythm and a lead here and there, or uh, and the vocal maybe doubled, or we had somebody come in and do we had some gang vocals just to support the lead vocal. But it was done in a relatively really short order. It wasn't uh, Dark Side of the Moon by any stretch of the imagination, you know. Not Fleetwood Mac either. <laughs> Although those records are wonderful too. They're really quite produced. Yeah, they're greatly produced. Sometimes sometimes you get a little overproduced. We we like the organic sound of records. Um the book, everything well, is coming. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I like. And 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 I get a sense of that on the new album that that it really is and how can I put this? And I, I don't mean to sound bad if it does, but but th- there's a sort of a it's a guy in his guitar kind of sound to this, where where it just feels like mm-hmm. it comes from the heart. Maybe that's a better way to put it. And and that's what I really love about sure. the, the countdown. Um, the book, real quick Thank here, you. everything yeah. <laughs> is combustible. Right. That seemed to be a, a a cathartic purging of all everything talk to me about that book and sort of the mindset going into it because it it there was no holds barred it, it borderlined in, in some places right. on on soft porn uh talk oh, to me dear. about right but well i mean I didn't you mean you, it for i didn't mean it that way that's just an honest right trail of my life and i'd always been asked uh, about events and i have a great memory or you know whether it's a blessing or a curse i have it and i've always been telling stories so I actually got voice recognition software a long time ago because I didn't want to type and ruin my wrists and playing guitar, you know, because that's my vocation. So I didn't want to do that. So I began um, talking stories into the computer and storing them as little vignettes or pieces of uh, my life and uh, things that I've experienced or witnessed and uh, been involved in. And uh, I gathered a whole load of these around that uh, somebody to help me put it all together, like a co-writer or an editor. I actually spoke to uh, of other people. I spoke to David Frick of Rolling Stone. And he said, well, you've got to, I read do your stuff and it's great. And you've got a voice and you should do your own. You know, you don't need another writer. And so that gave me a great deal of confidence. And uh then I found a rather small publishing concern in Maine that it had me do a foreword of a, a more serious book about John Lennon's psyche um, that they had uh, issued. And uh, I said, hey, would you like to take a look at my uh, stories? I've got, a, you know, 600 pages of stories. And they said, sure. So I sent them 10 or so and downloaded and sent them on the computer. And he said, I would love to publish this. And uh, it became what, you know, uh, the good thing is that I wasn't with uh, Simon and Schulster as an unimportant author's first book. I was with a company that really supported what I was doing. And it's the same with the record company, Plowboy. Um, The Plowboy name comes from Eddie Arnold's uh, grandson. He was the Tennessee Plowboy. (laughs) So that's where that name comes from. And uh, they're they're doing rock and not so much. Con- they have some country acts, blues acts, but they're not afraid of doing rock like this. And they're relatively, you know, mid-sized company, independent. And it's just terrific. So that with the publisher, we're doing a um, 
there's a special series of, uh, I signed like a thousand of each of the books and the CDs. They're doing a book CD combination with a download card. It's available through Amazon and all the rest. And, uh, you know, we're looking to, to, to it's the release date of the paperback version. The hardcover did very well. Uh, it's time for another issue of the paperback. Yeah, I, I I've also you. been doing a lot of a lot of art. I'm a painter, and have been painting for the last four years. So we're going to put some of that together and do a website about that. Oh, I can't wait! And I, and I believe the the cover of the countdown is your art, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, both both sides. It's my art. One, the front is, you know, I just thought of the countdown, and I that's you can see it there. It's a little rocket. And uh, it's kind of my my style of sloppy, uh, but uh, it turned out pretty pretty good. And I love the cover, the way the graphic guy did it. It reminds me of those old uh, late fifties or early sixties jazz records. Yeah, with I love the, uh, with the arrow and stereo and stuff like that. Yeah, I love that. That that's a great look. It it it, it brought me back to sort of the the early Beatle records kind of look too. Uh, just real quick. Yep. Uh, yeah. In, in in terms of making new music, you know, you have this legacy. You've been a lo- around a long, long time. You could easily put your name on the marquee and do Marquee Moon, the the album show, followed by you know Adventure, the album show. What compels you to mm. create new music at this point? Because, uh, I mean, is it just the the need to be creative? Is is it is it yeah. financial? Okay. So so talk to me about that need. No. Then. Okay. It's just I have to. I mean, that's what I like doing. I like playing live. I like playing new music. Um, you know, as far as Marky Moon, you know, uh, I left uh, television and they went proceeded to go out and go all around the world doing nothing but Marky Moon. I did it for 35, 36 years, and it was time to just go do something else and get my own, uh, get my own career uh, going. And that's really the, the nuts and bolts of it. It's and it, uh, a necessity for me. It's like breathing. Yeah, because it, it's just important to keep new music coming. There, there are some that love to just sort of sit on their laurels sure. and, and tour on, on something they did 30 years ago. But I'm glad that, that an right. artist like yourself figures out, you know what? I can't just do that. And then when you hear the album, like Countdown, and you hear the songs, like you said, Smoke mm-hmm. and Whisper, and you go, yeah, thank God. Thank God he's not sitting on his laurels. Um, right. Richard, absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I, I wish we had more time. I, I have you booked in between Alice Cooper and Dennis Dunaway from the Alice Cooper band. Excellent. But uh, yeah. I would love to at some point and get another half hour with you. It's absolute pleasure. Today. That's wonderful. I, I, I really appreciate the support. and Thank you so much. Uh, happy to talk with you. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Okay, you too. Cheers Bye-bye. now. Bye-bye. I, along with... Westwood One would love to learn more about you. If you have a minute to spare, we would really appreciate if you could head over to www.podsurvey.com. That is www.podsurvey.com to fill out a short survey telling us who you are and what you like to do. This information will be used to help us create better content for the show and to find advertisers that you want to hear from. Again, 
Thanks, and if you have time, head over to www.podsurvey.com. That is www.podsurvey.com to complete the survey and help us learn more about you, our cherished listeners. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.